on. I'm on three seats. <laughs> Look, there goes the game. You're listening to Ithaca Now, WICB's weekly news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Clayton Davis, and thanks for joining us. Tonight, we hear about major police reform plans going forward. Thank you. Let's take this to a vote. An inside look at what getting a vaccine is like. I don't love shots, but from what I've heard, it's pretty much painless. And continuing to explore Ithaca College's faculty cuts and what led to them. The finances of higher education can be really convoluted and difficult to you know, use to uh, short-term advantage when it, when it comes to a situation like the pandemic. But up first, let's hear what's going on in the Ithaca area with our community beat. Following New York's announcement that everyone over the age of 16 will be able to get a vaccine starting April 6th, Cornell University has announced its intention to return to fully in-person instruction in the fall semester without an online option. Additionally, Cornell intends to require vaccination against COVID-19 for returning students other than medical or religious exemptions. Ithaca College also plans to be fully in-person for the fall, but has no official decision as to whether vaccines will be required. The Ithaca City Council recognized the 200-year anniversary of Greek independence with a celebration held at the St. Catherine Greek Orthodox Church. Alderman Duxon Nguyen gave an official statement to members of the church that recognized the anniversary and cited the difficulty in celebrating the event due to the pandemic. This celebration comes after U.S. President Joe Biden made an official proclamation recognizing the anniversary of an independent Greece. Recreational marijuana is now legal in the state of New York. In a vote, the state legislature and Governor Cuomo passed the law making use of the drug legal for all adults over 21 and expunging the criminal records of anyone who has committed a crime related to marijuana that would now be legal. The state anticipates tax collections could reach $350 million annually. Much of that, the state says, will go to communities disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. Dispensaries are expected to open in 2022. A majority of senior housing residents in Titus Towers and McGraw House have now been vaccinated. The vaccinations were a part of a county effort to keep senior citizens in the area safe from COVID. Direct transportation to vaccination sites from both senior housing facilities was provided by Tompkins County Consolidated Area Transit and its accessible program got about. TCAT, the Ithaca Housing Authority, and the Tompkins County Health Department all combined efforts to vaccinate almost 300 people. In more vaccine news, the state health department has approved Cornell, Ithaca College, and TC3 to be vaccine distribution sites, according to the Cornell Daily Sun. But the Tompkins Health Department says that when distribution at these sites begins depends on supply, which Director Frank Krupa says will likely change in the coming weeks. Ithaca Halal Meat and Grocery is under investigation for federal fraud. The Ithaca business came under investigation by the USDA and U.S. Department of Agriculture after both parties found, quote, large and recurring irregularities into the disbursement of federally funded benefits. 
end quote, within their records. Questions about the incident should be directed towards the U.S. Assistant Attorney's Office in Syracuse. For Jay Bradley, I'm Christian Matry, WICB News. With vaccines now open to those 30 and older and soon being available for all New Yorkers 16 and up, many people will be scheduling appointments in the coming days. Former news director Bridget Bright recently got hers and documented her experience for those who were unsure of the process or wanted a closer look. Over 12 million New Yorkers are now eligible for the coronavirus vaccine. That means if you're listening to this and haven't gotten your vaccination yet, you're likely eligible. Eligible groups include doctors, nurses, and healthcare workers, like at the start of the vaccination rollout. But now it includes anyone aged 30 and over, first responders, teachers, public transit workers, grocery store workers, public safety workers, and New Yorkers with certain underlying conditions. About a month ago, I became eligible. This was my experience. I was able to book an appointment as soon as I realized I was qualified. It was around midnight one Thursday night and there were appointments in Syracuse at the state fairgrounds. When getting my first dose, I'll admit, I was flooded with emotions, excitement, relief, and honestly, a little bit of fear. The thing is, I hate shots. I know I'm not alone in this, but I'm really scared of shots. My family never lets me forget how in elementary school, I was so terrified of getting a shot that I kicked a nurse. I will feel bad about that forever. And if that nurse is listening somehow, I am so sincerely sorry. But this was a shot I was, mostly, excited to get. While walking into the vaccination site, I had no idea what to expect. I was greeted by military officers taking everyone's temperatures. I then saw the sign that I would be receiving the Pfizer vaccine that day. A volunteer then asked if I had any symptoms, and then I was put in line to confirm my paperwork. After a maybe five minute wait, I showed a volunteer my ID and insurance card and was sent in line to get a shot. The line to get my shot was a little longer, maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes. But then I was told to go to a table after waiting in line. Each table had a nurse and a volunteer. The nurse to administer the vaccine, a volunteer to type up your paperwork in the computer system. I spoke to the nurse who administered my first shot about how she was doing. She told me that she was on a string of multiple 12-hour days of administering vaccines. She wasn't even tired, she said, and that she was just happy to be there to help get as many people vaccinated as she could. And then she gave me my shot, and I was off after the 15-minute waiting period, of course. I didn't have any symptoms after that first shot. My second shot was scheduled automatically for two weeks later at the same site. Two of my roommates and I all had appointments for the same day when I had my second dose, so we took a little road trip up to Syracuse. 
directions. Start. Head northwest, then turn right. We drove there, passing by Perry's ice cream trucks and signs saying balddivorcelawyer.com and ordain women priests, while talking about boy bands and 2000s pop music, occasionally announcing cows when we're driving past farms. How do you feel walking into getting um, I'm excited. I'm kind of nervous. I don't love shots, but from what I've heard, it's pretty much painless. So I'm excited to get it over with. We were in and out of the New York State Fairgrounds in less than a half an hour this time, and only had to wait in two surprisingly quick lines. The attendant helping the nurse who administered my shot told me that there were 5,000 to 7,000 people getting vaccinated at that site alone every single day. He also told me that the day I went was a 7,000-person day, even with almost no wait at all. It seems like they've gotten down a pretty effective system. After this shot, it wasn't as easy as the first. I decided to record myself 24 hours after my first shot, and as you can tell, I was not feeling great. It's been 24 hours since my second COVID vaccine, and I'll be honest, I'm really not feeling good. I am currently laying in my bed recording this, feeling awful, um, slightly feverish, lots of like joint and muscle pain, and um, I have no energy to do anything, and Earlier, I was nauseous and still have no appetite. In 48 hours, I was feeling almost back to normal. Okay, it's now been 48 hours since my second dose of the COVID vaccine, and I am feeling so much better than I was feeling this time yesterday. I'm really thankful that it wasn't COVID and that it was my body fighting off COVID for good, hopefully. So... I'm really thankful for that and thankful that I don't feel as bad as I did yesterday. The CDC announced this week that all vaccinated people can travel without quarantining or getting a COVID-19 test if they are asymptomatic, unless stated otherwise by local officials. Vaccinated people are allowed to visit with other fully vaccinated people indoors without wearing masks or physical distancing and visit indoors with unvaccinated people from a single household who are at low risk for severe COVID-19 disease without wearing masks or physically distancing. Of course, there are still risks and we are still living amid a pandemic. The CDC still recommends that all vaccinated individuals proceed with caution and maintain all social distancing and mask wearing procedures while in public. So if you're vaccinated, maybe we can meet up for coffee or even high five. For WICB News, I'm Bridget Bright. This is Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm Clayton Davis. In the wake of the trial of Derek Chauvin and the deadline for Governor Cuomo's order for municipalities to develop a plan to reform their local police departments just having passed, both the city of Ithaca and Tompkins County passed amended versions of their reimagining public safety resolutions. News Director Jay Bradley has the rundown of what went on at the votes. After months of focus groups, debates, town halls, protests, and more, 
The city of Ithaca has passed the resolution adopting their reimagined public safety plan as part of New York State's Police Reform and Reinvention Collaborative, an initiative ordered by Governor Andrew Cuomo following the death of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter protests last year. All those in favor? That carries unanimously. Thank you, everyone. That says something right there. The goal of the order is to increase engagement with stakeholders in local communities and have locally approved plans for the strategies, policies, and procedures of local police agencies while addressing any racial bias or disproportionate policing of communities of color. Each local government with a police agency, excluding things like colleges and private institution police services, had to review and then establish a plan to improve policing in their jurisdiction with input from the community by April 1st of this year. While it can be said that other cities took steps to change policing, the city of Ithaca took a relative leap, declaring the intention to create a new Department of Public Safety to replace the current Ithaca Police Department with both armed and unarmed divisions of first responders while planning various reforms in enforcement, accountability, and recruiting. While the name isn't final and all the officers will still be hired and will receive the same benefits, a change from the initial draft that led to accusations of union busting, there are a lot of changes laid out for the near future. Alderperson Laura Lewis says, Implementation is going to take much more work going into the future. We don't know information about budget. We don't know position descriptions. We don't know who will head a department. A lot of the debate the night of the vote revolved around the language of creating something new versus using language like restructure or design. Many council members affirmed that declaring that something new would be created would be a more forceful push in that direction and better communicate their intention to the community, especially as some critics on the left have decried it as more of a rebranding than a reimagining. I believe that we are all committed to real change. And I think having a deadline is very helpful. It sends a clear message and it gives us a forward motion. And some wanted to assure that while they were changing things, they did not want to be misconstrued as abolishing the police. The reimagined public safety collaborative that came up with the plan, resolution, and recommendations was an effort shared by both Tompkins County and the city of Ithaca. Although the two municipalities plan to work together on some of the efforts, they will also take on their own initiatives. Prior to its unanimous passage in the Common Council, the county's version of the reimagining public safety plan was passed by the Tompkins County Legislature on Tuesday, passing 11 to 2. Thank you. Let's take this to a vote. 11 ayes, 2 noes. Thank you all very much. With legislators Glenn Morey and Mike Sigler voting nay. The county will not be rebranding or changing its police force in the same way as the city. The proposal faced some debate and discussion from community members that echoed other compliments and complaints, with detractors focusing on the rural areas of the county being given the same resolution as the city. The county and the city have much different demographics and much different needs. But as county legislator Rich John explained, there's reasons for doing this together. These are the two largest police agencies in the county. Any effective changes to process, particularly emergency response, it's going to work a lot better if the two agencies are working together. And the city police department and the sheriff collaborate in lots of ways as it is. Another speaker, though, voiced optimism. I am speaking up now because I find this proposal to be substantive and potentially workable. 
and the council members debated over some amendments. In the end, the county pledged to evaluate creating a county public safety review board and implement an alternative to law enforcement response system for crisis intervention. With the city, Tompkins pledged to create a real-time public safety community dashboard and create a program to promote and support officer wellness. Also, develop a new training curriculum for officers that incorporated de-escalation and mental health components. Develop an outreach plan to connect and a plan to address trauma between police officers and other residents. Among the amendments turned down was to evaluate a residency requirement for Tompkins Sheriff's deputies. As noted by the Ithaca Voice, Sheriff Derek Osborne says that most of his deputies live in neighboring counties and commute to work. Ownership and repurposing of the SWAT vehicle is still to be discussed further. State Senator Tom O'Mara and IPD Chief Dennis Nair have both spoken out against the involvement of a man named Richard Rivera in collecting data for the Reimagined Public Safety Collaborative. Rivera is a local nonprofit worker who, among other things, works to help the homeless, who served 39 years in prison for the killing of an off-duty NYPD officer in a botched robbery. They and other state Republicans say that he should not have been involved, despite his current work. Rivera, who was originally arrested in 1981 when he was 16, told WENY News that he is not for abolishing the police or union busting and was only minorly involved in the process, helping to collect data. But whether or not they used Rivera, as it does with any major proposal, those involved and those in the community know it has to revolve around one thing, listening. Alderperson Cynthia Brock says, I've definitely come to recognize that, that we as a community need to go through this process of reconciliation, of, of listening to each other. For more on the Reimagined Public Safety Collaborative and process, check out WRFI's Which Way Forward Project, a collaboration with Ithaca College's Park Scholars, The Ithaca Voice, and more. Details can be found on their website. Both of these plans signal just a first step and the work of implementing these plans and how the community reacts to them are yet to be seen. Alderpersons Donna Fleming and Deb Molinoff say, I think we all have to push the message that this is nuanced and complicated and requires persistent, careful thinking. We need to remember the impetus for why we're having this discussion, why we're having these conversations, and why the governor pushed our municipalities to do the hard work of addressing this issue and moving the needle on this issue. We have to remember we were tasked to look through is the lens of those who watched that video footage and are terrified that it could have been them, could have been their son or their brother or their father. We have to change the narrative around this. And I have also heard our police officers say they have expressed a, a genuine concern for moving forward through healing. I, I think we do have an opportunity here. This is an investment in public safety in all regards. We'll make sure to keep following the county and the city for the implementation of the Reimagined Public Safety Plan. For WICB News, I'm Jay Bradley. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey, my name is Jessica Dresch, and I am the host of the brand new WICB radio show, About This. About This is a bi-weekly podcast about cultural events and stories. There's a constant anxiety about being found out by ICE. An anonymous phone call telling her where some bodies may be buried. The 
journalist Gansberg had no basis, none at all, for saying that 38 people heard the attack and stood at their window and watched. I can't even begin to count the writers and journalists I look up to, so why not have a show devoted to talking to them about their work? Each episode, I'll sit down with a writer or journalist and dive into one of their recent projects. Join me for thoughtful conversation and good thoughts. You can check out the show on the Ithaca Now podcast feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. WICB's podcast network includes album reviews. Simone's version opens with a reticent, down-tempo, a cappella vocal track that leaves the listener on the edge of their seat. Music theory. Da-da-da-da-da. That's also the notes of Got Me On My Knees. All Things The Great White Way. The melody of the song slowly but surely steps up. It's like her hopes and her dreams are like surging. Check out our latest episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Anchor. Search WICB Presents. You're listening to Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm Clayton Davis. In the last two weeks, we've heard from faculty affected and those speaking out against the academic programming prioritization process at Ithaca College, which is resulting in faculty and programs being cut from the school in the face of lower enrollment and financial challenges. This week, Madeline Lorraine and Hamadri Seth look more at what led them to that process and what's happening to many places of higher education right now in the face of the pandemic. I will say it's been quite struggling to see since that time at least two or three of the colleges that we studied, including Concordia and uh, Mills College in California, which also just announced that they're closing, Mm -hmm. have announced that they are being merged or shutting down or what have you. And I think that just goes to show, you know, what the stakes are with with all colleges these days, not just small liberal arts colleges. Prospects for higher education institutions have not looked right over the course of the pandemic. Fall 2020 saw a 3.6% drop in undergraduate enrollment compared to fall 2019, according to data previously presented by NPR and collected from National Student Clearinghouse. While the numbers speak for themselves, this drop in enrollment has also manifested in the clear, sometimes desperate measures that many colleges have had to take in the last year to retain students and to continue to remain relevant from offering students admissions without the usual standardized testing requirements to conducting large-scale layoffs to change the financial outlook of the school, the latter being something Ithaca College students and other stakeholders are all too familiar with. I'm Hamadri Said. And I'm Madeline Lorene, and this is the third and final part of the series we started two weeks ago discussing the faculty cuts and APP process from the perspective of different stakeholders within the Ithaca College community, faculty, students, staff, alumni, and administration. Today, we continue our exploration into the subject by going through some of the ideas that have been brought up in discussions around this topic possible questions we still have surrounding the issue, whether or not we've found answers to them, and a couple interviews with voices slightly different from what we've become used to hearing on this topic. We would have loved to share additional insight brought in by a member of the administration, but unfortunately, as we mentioned in our first episode, David Maley, Director of Public Relations at Ithaca College, responded to our email to the President and the Provost, saying that they believe that their comments to the campus community on February 24th should suffice. A number of members of the Academic Program Prioritization Advisory Committee also refused to talk to us, although I will note that all the responses we received 
were respectful, and some included links to resources with information about the APP process. Don't forget, if you haven't listened to the last two episodes in our series and are interested, you can find them on our website, wicb.org, and also under Ithaca Now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pocket Casts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Many news headlines have been dedicated to stories about how small, liberal arts colleges like Ithaca College have had to adapt to financial stressors. During the pandemic, smaller, less recognizable colleges, both public and private, saw a large drop in applications, while more well-known colleges saw a notable increase, according to a recent New York Times article titled, Interest surge in top colleges while struggling ones scrape by for applicants. Even before the pandemic, though, the costs of higher education were on the rise while attendance continued to fall. Starting in 2018, Ithaca College's administration began drafting a campus-wide plan called Ithaca Forever to address the academic and monetary value of attendance. Between 2011 and 2020, attendance has dropped from 6,654 to 5,200. As of the 2019-2020 school year, a majority of the college's operating budget comes from student fees, 88%. According to the Ithaca College Administration, the current budget deficit for the 2020-2021 fiscal year is estimated to be $24.5 million driven by expenses related to COVID-19 and the reduced number of students living on campus for spring 2021. Many of these issues go beyond just Ithaca College, and other schools have worked on similar plans starting before anyone even knew about the pandemic. But for some, this approach has looked different. But we did not, you know, forcibly lay anybody off like many other schools have, have had to do. And I know our president, President Jonathan Gibraltar, is very proud of that. That was Chris Pollock, Director of Communications and Marketing at Wells College. Located 30 minutes north of Ithaca on Cayuga Lake, the school is made up of just 500 students and, as Pollock tells me, enough faculty and staff to fit in one lecture hall. Although significantly smaller than Ithaca College, both schools get a majority of their operating funds directly from student tuition, room, and board. Pollock says their strategic plan before the pandemic set their community up for success more than some of their peers, but it wasn't easy. Correct, correct. I mean, we obviously had to pivot pretty hard to, to you know, account for the unforeseen financial losses that happened during the pandemic. But, you know, we were already well down this path a couple of years before, um, you know, in the interest of, uh, you know, making Wells, continuing it as a, you know, sustainable institution in the long term. Part of their strategic plan relied on reevaluating how the college makes money and uses what revenue it has. To maintain a competitive advantage, tuition was dropped to $30,000 per year. Yeah, so that took effect, I believe, in the fall of 2018. And but it allowed us to be placed among other peer schools whose base tuitions were lower. And in summer 2019, months before the pandemic started, the college implemented a salary cut for staff and faculty. There was a couple different levels. Those who made more than 
$50,000 were forced to take a 6% pay cut. And then those who made under, it was the equivalent of 3%, but it was actually done through some furlough days where mm-hmm. you know, these hourly employees took a furlough day and they weren't paid for that day. Along with the changes in financial strategy before the pandemic, Pollock says Wells' administration has focused on building community trust and resilience throughout this time. We really wanted people to know of our successes and of our challenges. And the way it's received isn't just the decisions themselves, but how they're communicated and the reasons that are given for those decisions. And so we knew that we owe that certainly to, to our alums and our students and our faculty you know, to to really keep them as informed as they possibly could. When the college closed its doors to students in March 2020, Pollock says the Board of Trustees and administrators were unsure if they'd be able to reopen in fall 2020. It was through a series of weekly emails that Wells President Jonathan Gibraltar told the campus community about the possibility of the school closing. Without a stream of funds from students living and learning on campus, the school had no guarantee to continue. You know, one of the most controversial letters that was sent out was in um, early May of 2020, when President Gibraltar announced that, you know, Wells, you know, may have to close permanently if it did not fix its financial situation very soon. And that was quite a controversial letter. It caused a great deal of outcry among some of our alums. It got us uh, some media attention, and uh, it also got the attention of our creditors. But, you know, we did that very strategically. Pollock says this kind of transparency about the institution's financial health is what helped them build trust among their campus and alumni community and bring in millions in donations. We launched an emergency fundraising campaign among our, our alums and other friends and donors, and we were able to raise about $3.7 million in cash and pledges in about six weeks' time, which we were able to apply to this current fiscal year, the 2020-21 fiscal year. The fundraising campaign, along with stimulus through the government's Paycheck Protection Program, allowed the campus to reopen in the fall of 2020. Thanks to their reopening, Wells College also received two state grants for student support services and C-STEP programs that boosted the school's finances significantly. All of these things together really helped turn around our financial position in less than a year to the point where we are not at all sitting around right now talking about if we are or are not going to operate next year. We know we're going to operate next year. Although Wells College can take steps to ensure their security, Liberal arts colleges across the country are facing financial pressures they can't overcome. Concordia College in New York is set to close and become part of Iona College, and Pollock says they've seen others like Mills College in California face the same reality. These are two schools Wells considered peer institutions. He says another piece to Wells' resilience is taking steps to unlock funds tied up in their endowment. Pollock says that many people outside of higher education might not understand that a school's endowment isn't always made up of accessible funds. The finances of higher education can be really convoluted and difficult to you know, use to uh, short-term advantage when it, when it comes to a situation like the pandemic. Moving forward, Wells sees their success and sustainability as directly connected to their outside collaborations. They all involve some degree of partnerships, either with an outside 
company or another college or some other organization. And, you know, we're seeing that we think that our future lies very much in partnerships and collaborations on, on all types of levels. Despite an abundance of criticism for the APP process, there are those in the school who see this change as necessary, even if it is tough to swallow. I will say in the last four years, I've definitely seen some programs, you know, kind of wither away on their own. Um, and as a student, you know, I kind of ask myself, how can a college best serve its students? And how can it best serve its faculty and its various stakeholders? And I think for me, I truly believe that it was time for Ithaca College to kind of realign when it came to its priorities and really discuss, you know, what, what is its future? That was Jordan Stecker, a senior integrated marketing communications major at Ithaca College with minors in business administration, education and psychology. Stecker recently shared an Ithacan op-ed in which an IC alum talked about being in favor of how the school was handling the faculty cuts. Stecker told me he realized that Ithaca College was going to need reform and has needed it for a while when he joined the Ithaca Forever Committee early in his years at the college. Stecker says that he believes that change can sometimes feel unwelcome, but that it is crucial for improvement to happen. It's very unfortunate. I'm not going to lie, you know, one of the most difficult things, in my opinion, of progress is the non-human approach sometimes. You know, everyone who works for a company, because Ithaca College, I mean, it's a school, but it's also a company, it needs to sustain itself, you know, connects to it in a larger picture. Stecker says that he wants to find ways to support his college at the same time as supporting his professors. You know, I ask myself, I want to help my professors and I want to help my institution. Helping both should not be mutually exclusive. I should be able to help both. And, you know, I, I'm trying to do whatever I can. My mission to help has not been, okay, I want to attack the college and say, oh, well, you know, the college should do this, it should that. And I don't want to attack individuals saying, you know, individuals should be prepared to leave it in time if they're not tenured professors. Instead, I think that the, the focus should be, how does the institution go forward? How can we support progress? And how can we also support our professors either by, you know, giving them like, you know, good ratings on LinkedIn or rate my professor, or even, you know, helping them network or doing anything we can. Although Stecker is not afraid to express his views on the topic, he feels that the conversation around it can sometimes feel stifling. When it comes to discourse, what is happening right now is detrimental to people's experiences, both students and professors. It's detrimental to our college's reputation. And it's really disappointing to see because people aren't speaking to one another. Honestly, from both the college perspective and the, I guess, um, I see open the books, alumni against austerity, Everyone is speaking so loud and they're only speaking to each other. There is no cross communication. It's not necessarily respectful communication. The majority of my friends agree with me, but a lot of us also aren't sharing our opinions, let's say significant articles and online because A, we don't wanna get attacked because it seemed to be not just you attack like a, a decision, but you attack the person. Seconds, there isn't a ton, there has not been a lot of room for feedback in this process, both positive and negative. You know, people will say all the time, you know, the college didn't hear a negative or didn't hear my feedback in terms of all oh, my disagreements. 
I mean, they're also hearing positive uh, agreements either. But I mean, I think that's very natural because realistically, the changes that are being made need to be made by people who know a lot of stuff. And that's not going to be students. He believes that at the end of the day, Ithaca College is not looking to hurt its students and that although there are aspects of this change that have affected the Ithaca College community, including his own close community, the change comes for the college's long-term benefit. As for students looking to make their voices heard, Stecker says that the college does have resources to make that happen. There are certain bodies and opportunities at Ithaca College that give students this opportunity to kind of speak up, speak their story, speak their truth, and be instrumental in making changes. As someone who is a student employee in two departments, as someone who is a, a board member, a president of two clubs, as someone who has served on committees, I've served on dean's advisories committees, I've, ser I've served on um, program implementation committees and, and um, advisor committees and all this and community councils. I would really strongly encourage students who say, you know, I have no opportunity to really look deeply because there are places where you can speak up in a respectful way and they will hear you. Hey, Madri, how are you doing? Hi, Madeline. I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's Easter Sunday and we're on deadline. Finally, with all this information on our hands from a variety of different sources, we decided to discuss some of the things that stood out to us through this series, especially in this part. Kind of like gathering from what we went through today, which I think was very, like kind of a very different tone from what we've heard um, in the last two episodes. Um, I found myself exposed to a bunch of sort of new information that I hadn't really come across before. So one of those is like, I was reading this Ithacan article that Jordan shared before I talked to him, which was an opinion piece from an alum who defended the college's decision. It's, it's called commentary, pretending change isn't necessary, doesn't help. Um, and something Zach Ford, the alum featured in the article said was, uh, quote, Many of the administrative staff members who the college has laid off because of the pandemic did not have the same benefit, unquote, uh, in which he was basically referring to like how these staff members had almost no notice, which was something that the faculty losing their positions do benefit from. Um, and I think this is a very interesting point because it is true in the sense that I haven't even really heard the names of or know any numbers for the administrative staff that were laid off during the pandemic or details of the furloughs that were made and how individual lives were affected by that. So um, it's definitely something to think about. Like why didn't those people also get the same or even nearly as much attention? Yes, absolutely. And I also think that given those measures were implemented under the financial stress that the pandemic put on the college and similar to the reasons that the administration is currently giving for faculty cuts, and I think one reason that people are so shocked and upset is because even though Ithaca Forever Plan includes restructuring, no one expected to lose faculty this way. Exactly. And Zach had a really good point that he brought up in that, um, you know, there is a little bit more support for faculty who have more of a timeline who are losing their jobs this spring versus right. those who are furloughed almost immediately last spring. And that's something that the campus community and greater community needs to walk through as well. 
Right, yeah. And I think this has been sort of one of the biggest points that I've heard being made against the process across the board. Like, um, like I think the difference between those two things was that uh, when the furloughs were made, sort of, it was seen as more of like an urgent financial decision that no one could really help. But when it came to sort of the faculty cuts and the professors being cut, it was this mediated careful process that was going on from way before the pandemic even hit. And it was this process that, that just did not seem to take into account the futures of many of our faculty. And I think that's what really has upset people uh, when it came to this particular issue was that this was something that was well thought out and yet it somehow feels so insensitive. Um, but yeah, another interesting thing that I found in an article in the Chronicle of Higher Ed, um, it's titled, Why Haven't More Colleges Closed? Um, is that at the beginning of the pandemic, experts estimated that about 750 to 1,000 colleges would close in a year. But in reality, we saw that only 10 permanent closures took place between April 2020 and January 2021. And these have all been small private colleges that were already in a lot of financial trouble before the pandemic even hit. Absolutely. And that's one thing that I talked about with Chris Pollock from Wells College. And we spoke about reasons why these have been small and medium-sized colleges that have mostly been affected. Bigger schools are making moves to change their admissions processes. A lot of Larger universities have been dropping test requirements, including Cornell University here in Ithaca. And similar to what Chris Pollock said, young students are attracted to big schools with big names and big endowments, and that can give a sense of false security. The lesser known colleges like IC are being left out of the process and pushed deeper in their financial problems. I was listening to the Marketplace podcast where UPenn professor Robert Zimsky talked about the fate of small liberal arts colleges. In one episode called Some Colleges Are Closing Their Doors for Good Amid the Pandemic, he said, quote, that at the moment, the river is flowing towards big, rich institutions and away from small, under-resourced institutions. Yeah, and this takes me back to the article from the Chronicle of Higher Ed, in which there was one paragraph that sounded very similar to the kinds of words the administration has been using in describing the reasons behind this change. Um, it goes, quote, while institutions may survive, not everything about them will. Institutional evolution is an important part of institutional survival. That is, although more institutions than expected are likely to survive the current crisis, they're also likely to adopt fundamental changes to adapt to resource scarcity, changing markets, and the new competitive environment. Um, and then like following that, there was another like small quote that when um, colleges throughout history have survived economic and other crises by rebranding themselves, unquote. Um, but again, like, I think this sort of gives me a bit of an insight into what they were going for um, when they sort of went through this process. But at the same time, that is not the same, that what is being done in Ithaca College right now was necessarily the only option uh, or that other ways, similar to what other colleges have adopted, where they did not have to take on this huge human cost to bring change were not possible. What I would say at this point is simply that we do not have enough information or expertise to really know the exact situation that IC was in or is in and the exact measures required to make that situation better. But we do know that it has not been entirely kind to our professors. 
Yeah, and that brings up another part of this discussion, which some professors brought up from our first episode. And that's that certain kind of professors are more vulnerable when it comes to these big kinds of sweeping changes. Before we get into all the details of that, we wanted to share this breakdown of the 116 faculty cuts that we've been hearing about that we found in an email sent out to faculty a few weeks ago. In the breakdown of the 116 full-time equivalent reductions, we can see the contingent and part-time faculty positions are most at stake. 35% of faculty position reductions come from attrition, which basically means that the college will not be rehiring all lines that are vacated through voluntary retirements and departures. 7% of short-term one-year positions, which rely heavily on contingent faculty, are being cut. Only 20% of the faculty cuts come from those with full-time tenure-track positions. There is just a lot more security for tenured and tenure-track professors. And I'm not necessarily saying that that is a bad thing. Like, that is a whole other conversation. But the question that comes up here is, is it fair to treat contingent faculty the way we currently do, where they never know when they could be let go? There was a data snapshot that I found by the American Association of University Professors, the second paragraph of which says, quote, today the tenure system has shrunk and the majority of faculty members are contingent workers who work without the protections of tenure. While many students and parents may assume that the majority of faculty are tenured or tenure track, our data demonstrate a truth long known to those inside higher education. Students at U.S. colleges and universities are more likely to be taught by non-tenure track faculty members working in full or part-time contingent positions than by tenure stream faculty, unquote. And Ithaca College has been in a similar place in the past years where it has been heavily dependent on contingent faculty. So that is certainly a point that I think needs to be talked about more. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you what your perspective is on the books as we're wrapping up this series. A lot of Ithaca College's finances are available in their annual report, but this data is so complex. For someone who doesn't understand the financial structure of a college, this is tough to make sense of. After so many people calling for transparency, I wonder what could have been done with the information available to limit the impact on the community. What about the school's finances could have been interpreted differently to save jobs? So much data is available indicating that faculty positions are constantly in jeopardy. And when I was thinking back to my interviews with students and faculty groups, I wonder if the kind of transparency they're looking for has to do with addressing these issues at the school. Yeah, I think there are a lot of ifs surrounding this issue and a lack of perfect knowledge that is affecting our understanding of it as well. I think some relevant points have been made on both sides, although I won't pick one on here. That being said, the negative impacts of this decision that we see on our professors and the wider Ithaca community, even going beyond Ithaca College, continue to be upsetting. And we do wish someone from the administration had spoken to us to address some of the more personalized questions we had for them for this particular series. Finally, I just want to wish everyone whose life is being negatively affected by this the best of luck. And I sincerely hope something good comes out of this for them. And to our listeners, we just want to say thank you for tuning in with us on this three-part series. It's been a real privilege to get to talk with members of the Ithaca College community about this greater issue and what it means for everyone and not just the school. 
think that right now at this point, higher education in some quarters is, is undervalued for what it brings to our to our society. I hope that you know as we transition out of the pandemic, that that becomes to be more celebrated once again. For WICB News, I'm Himadri Said, and I'm Madeline Lorreen. And that's all for this edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org. And if you'd like to listen to past stories, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear full stories anywhere, anytime. Also subscribe to the latest to hear our daily newscast every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast apps. For more updates throughout this week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show wouldn't happen without the support and assistance from Manager of Television and Radio Operations Jeremy Menard, WICB Station Manager Sam Ives, Programming Director Lou Barron, and News Social Media Coordinator Gabrielle Topping. Thank you. Ithaca Now is produced by News Director Jay Bradley, with the assistance from News Managing Director Celine Tatar, and this week's correspondents Bridget Bright, Hamadri Seth, and Madeline Lorraine. All the music from our show's intro and outro come from Dr. Dundiff of Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback, story ideas, just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at WICB.org. We will be back with a full episode of Ithaca Now at 7 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Clayton Davis, and thank you for listening to Ithaca Now on WICB.